Research Head Scotland from Dollar Academy in Dollar, and I'm incredibly excited to be joined as my special co-host for this Conference Takeaway podcast by Mr. Chris McGrain. Hello, Chris. Hi, Craig. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Knackered, but I'm, I'm good. Um, just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, where do you work? What do you do? Uh, I'm the Head of Maths, Principal Teacher, as we call it in Scotland, uh, at Hillhead High School in Glasgow. Uh, and like yourself, I enjoy spending my Saturdays coming to <laughs> education conferences and listening to people talk. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> Super. Right, well, we've had another jam-packed day. Uh, we're pretty knackered. We've both run sessions. You've done a back-to-back session. So we're going to talk about the ones that we've been to. And I think we only went to one together and then yep. we went to separate ones. So it'll be a surprise for me which ones you went to. But we opened up the day uh, with Daisy Christodoulou, who um, I was lucky. I went for a run with Daisy this morning before the conference. So we we drove in together and she was talking about seven myths of education and I said to her it's kind of like she's a rock band doing her first album going on tour with her first album because she doesn't talk much about seven myths of education she's all about um, making good progress comparative judgment and mm-hmm. so on so it was good to kind of take a look back to a book that I think in 2013 it came out I read it probably 2015 end of 2014 and it had a huge impact on my teaching career which I've spoke about many times I've written about in my book but I, before we talk about a session Chris well have you read it first have you I haven't I've read Making Good Progress yes. I've read the follow up and is it is it, would you get the sense was seven myths is it a big book would would a lot of teachers have read it in Scotland or I don't know how many have read it but I certainly think the ideas from it are becoming more pervasive they're becoming more more widely known um, because there's a kind of counter-culture yeah. emerging in Scotland at the moment. Um, the curriculum up here is quite different to in England, in that uh, in England where it's maybe now this whole knowledge, 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 yes. and prescriptive content up here, it's been much more open, much wider, and instead it's the experience that has been more emphasised, ah. and some of these edgy myths in terms of... Um, Go and, bake, go and make some cookies because like, the people on what was the, the one she talked about was uh, the slave traders yeah uh, from Dan Willingham that's yeah, right yeah and it was an idea that these people on their journey uh, an underground rail- railroad uh, the slaves up to Canada uh, they ate cookies so you go make cookies in the land by doing that and this was classed as a good lesson that sort of that sort of thing and we've had plenty of that in Scotland over the, past, over the past 10 years so, However, I think the tide is turning, definitely. So Daisy's ideas and those of others like Dan, what have you, are definitely oh, becoming more prominent. Which of the myths um, or, or which of the ideas would be the most kind of controversial, do you think, to, for teachers who are watching Daisy, who perhaps weren't aware of her work, perhaps haven't kind of, obviously haven't read the book, which of those kind of seven myths would be kind of the most shocking, do you think, to, to a teacher? Mm. I mean, they had the, like she said, um, that kind of the big one is that facts pre- prevent understanding. Is, is that something that will be controversial? Well, I, th- I, think, I think the thing is, it's this idea that, um, as I say, our curriculum up here didn't for a long time specify what you had to teach. Right. It just they had to experience things. So you end up with these situations where people don't really know what the curriculum is. It oh. wasn't defined. 
Um, so what would it be like in maths then? What, so they won't have kind of set things you have to they, teach. They they had these experiences and outcomes which are very vague. What um, can you give us an example? What, what, uh, what the kind I, of thing? I, kind of, I will have experience of, of uh, using probability. Oh, so it wasn't like you no. like that, solve that's compact like yeah, solve yeah. combined events or anything like that. Yeah, that, that experience. That's, yeah, I will have, uh, I will have, uh, I will have encounter different situations where I can handle and use money. But these are not. I'm not quoting right. No, of course it's that. That, idea. that, that kind of idea. I know there was my, there's my fallback to that. Um, Mark Priestley in his session, which we'll talk about. Yes. Um, they they went completely the other way. So t- people teachers said, "Oh, we've not got enough guidance on this." Right. So they've brought out uh, something in the region of three and a half thousand benchmarks, which Whoa. are now being used as kind of chat boxes in some situations. And they are kind of like learning objects. Yes, kind basically. Of yeah. And when did when did they come out? Uh, maybe two years ago now. Two years. Like. So this mm. is now kind of much more prescriptive. Yeah, uh, but people have spent ten years. Embedding curriculum for excellence, so I think a lot of people, maybe myself included, are not paying a great deal of attention oh. to those. Um, so anyway, the facts thing, yeah, I think that's the thing that's maybe been the biggest issue in Scotland. Subject specialism hasn't been valued particularly, uh, particularly in maths, uh, and you've had these sticking plasters. It's this idea of checklists. Yes. This is this is what this is what a good lesson is. Yes. And in fact, every subject is different, and what. However, they're, they're pervasive ideas. You have to have them thinking about what we should be thinking about. Yes. What is the learning? Have them on that task. Um, like, so active learning is a, a, a word that's used a lot, and uh, I've seen some really bad interpretations of that um, o- over the time. So that kind of idea that... So I wouldn't say that people have said, oh, facts prevent knowledge, yeah. but the role of knowledge and what knowledge is in Scotland in our curriculum perhaps hasn't been that prominent at all uh, over the past decade however as I say there's a kind of counter revolution kind of coming through kind well, of, where's that coming from like is it is it Twitter driving I it I think is Twitter's it? yeah Twitter's played a part in that um, certainly there's a, a whole a whole change up here over the past three or four years in particular um, your own book and the podcast I know a lot, a lot of people have engaged with that um, Mark McCourt and some of the, the stuff he does with LaSalle has been quite pivotal uh, the math coin for having a, having dates in Scotland as well has been important, and then Twitter as well. I think just people connecting. Yes. And um, I think it's been just a really really positive thing. And what so in in Daisy's book, a big focus of it is is Ofsted. The fact that Ofsted was saying things were good and outstanding lessons that mm-hmm. were that were look a bit dodgy now. So, mm-hmm. And again, to use 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 you a brilliant example, all these experiences and again I've I've spoke about it many times that I've done Ofsted outstanding lessons where the kids are doing all the teaching, I'm sat at the back, there's scissors going on, there's you know, kids are moving around, all this kind of stuff. It looks all showy, it looks great. Um, is that a similar thing? Do you have the pressure of inspections? Do they do they drive? Do teachers feel that similar kind of pressure? We, we, we do have inspections in Scotland. However, we don't get lessons graded. At all. Right. Um, I, I went through an inspection earlier this year, um, and I see that you, you felt you felt maybe a little bit under pressure as a head of the department. But as a classroom teacher, they'll visit and they'll maybe be in your room for thirty minutes, and that might be your only engagement with them. Right. Um, so. I don't think they drive it in the sense of they're going to be in your lesson looking at you. Yes. But the ideas from the government or organisation, which is called Education Scotland, at, and then perhaps, to be fair, people's interpretations yes. of what these ideas are, uh, that knockdown effect. It's this idea that uh, another thing Mark Priestley said today was, on average, pupils in Scotland are spending 30 hours a year copying down 
learning objectives from the board. 30 hours in, a year. In, some, nice in some schools. Um, just because it's what you should do. Yeah. It's a kind of uh, piecemeal approach, isn't it? Yes. And there's been a lot of that, because uh, I think that a lot of the curriculum aims and purposes have been quite positive. Yes. But it's not been holistically implemented at all. And uh, I could speak all day about kind of inspections and stuff, because I think that, rightly or wrongly, they, they do influence what teachers do on a, mm. a day-to-day basis, particularly how they're interpreted by kind of senior leadership and stuff. One change that's happened to, uh, in England with, with regard to Ofsted is Ofsted have, have tried to kind of counteract the kind of false interpretations of what they're saying by putting out kind of Ofsted myths. Mm. So Ofsted don't have a preferred teaching style, mm. Ofsted don't need to see group working lessons. Is that, are the kind of inspections that are happening in Scotland, are they trying to kind of move to that where they're trying to say look you people are interpreting this wrong is there an, an acknowledgement that's happening uh, I wouldn't say so but to be honest with you like, I think I think it's, it's very it's context specific right and I think there's an acknowledgement if, if you can make the case for what you're doing yes I found them to be very fair yes um, in my own experience I've been through two inspections up here and in both cases why are you doing that what are you doing uh, well here's my reason why yes and there's that professional autonomy that was given because that was all part of the driving force of not being prescriptive in the curriculum I think if you had senior management I think you're going to have a bit more pressure on you mm. in terms of inspection but looking in from the outside on England I don't think it's a driver in this to the same extent um, up here although it is, it is a pressure and it's stressful when it happens uh, but yeah, so I think it's a slightly different context. Got it, superb. Um, the other thing I just wanted to talk about, about um, Daisy's session, um, and again, I've heard Daisy speak uh, a few times now, and I've read a book, and I've spoken to her on the podcast, and I didn't think there was anything she could tell me that, that I hadn't heard from her before, but there's always something with it, and I don't know if you like this, but I like that, the idea of the knowing-doing gap, I thought was really, that really was nice. That was a lovely idea. So she said um, that, in English, uh, you ask any student what the sentences always start with, and they'll say a capital letter. But then when you look at kids' work, they often forget to do a capital mm-hmm. letter. So they know it, but they don't do it. And I started thinking of the kind of maths equivalent to yeah. that. And I started thinking it's something like, like I'll say to kids, what do you always need to remember with your answers? And they'll say, to put units in mm-hmm. or, to, or to round it or something yep. like that. And they'll, they'll, rap, they'll, they'll parrot fashion say that back to me. But then we've all seen kids leave units yeah. off or forget to do mm-hmm. the rounding. There's something in that, isn't that? Did, did you like that? D- definitely. A very similar experience when I heard her say that. I, mean, I was immediately drawn to factorisation. Oh, yeah. And the idea of, well, we're always going to take a common factor out first before we go on and uh, use whatever other technique. And you ask the kids, what do you do first? Take a common yeah. factor out. And then they go, they go and they're not thinking about it. They don't do it. It's interesting, isn't it? And it just, like she was saying, that the best way to, to solve this is through deliberate practice. Yes. Like it's, it's not enough for kids just to say it. They've uh-huh. got to explicitly do it. Well, yeah. Would you agree is that, that that's... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's got to be that opportunity, I think, to kind of apply it to sense-make and then maybe decision-making on it. Do yeah. I need to do it here? Do I not need to do yeah, it here? Absolutely. Indra- examples, not examples. Yeah, and that. if that opportunity there, definitely. Yeah. I like that. Um, was there anything else from her session that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, um, I think well, one of the, well, one of the myths that I, I do like that um, that she burst was this idea you can just look it up on Google. Yeah, that's it's always um, a good one. This isn't it? And yeah. like, I'd heard that many times before, but um, just the, the example she used was the thesaurus yes. experiment by George Miller. And it was a uh, Mrs. Morrow stimulated the soup, yeah. <laughs> and basically, obviously the kid mate has stirred up the soup. But so this idea, unless you've got domain knowledge, yeah. looking it up actually doesn't help you. 
And a cracking example of this is the Raven Hypothesis. Apparently, right. there's a proof coming out. Yes, yeah, on I Monday. saw it. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I thought, I'm going to look up on Wikipedia what this is all about. Right. Yeah, I've forgotten. I know it's something to do with primes. And yeah. now this stuff appears. Yes. Um, and then it said, you need to use this to solve this. To yes. Use this. Yes. Well, I don't even know how to do the first yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you yeah. can't just, I'm like, you just substitute it in. It was, yes. I, I get the feeling it's not as simple as that. That's a lovely show, example. I'm showing a bit of mathematical ignorance here. Uh, but essentially, even though mathematically equipped to a certain level, that was just beyond me at that point looking at it. And I thought I'd need a week, maybe a lot more, yes. to get anywhere near understanding Do what's you know going what? on there. That's a brilliant that. example of that. Because I wrote down myself about the, the Google thing. Because I, I still like I have friends who, who aren't teachers who sometimes will be having a drink or something and they'll be looking stuff up on Google. And I try and make this point that, like, and they say, oh, you'll be redundant your job soon because teachers, kids can just mm-hmm. teach themselves. And I try and make this argument. And I, sometimes I find it hard to convince them. But I thought Daisy's point that the dictionaries and thesauruses and and then kind of uh, extracting that to Google are designed for people who have a certain amount of knowledge within that domain yes. to make them useful. They're not tools for the novices. Mm-hmm. They're not tools for the uninformed because then you're misinterpreting things, you can't get the context of stuff. I thought that was really, really, yeah. really a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, de- definitely. And one other one of the things she said was the idea that you should re- really, with your lesson plan, you should be reviewing it to actually look at it in terms of what the pupils will be thinking about, yeah. not just what they'll be doing. And I think that's advice we've heard before, but it's nice hearing that again. It's so, so simple, and again, Dan Willingham again, and I think he says, yeah, that the single best piece of advice he could give to mm-hmm. teachers is to review lesson plans in terms of what will the students be thinking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's nice. And I also like a bit of a kind of world premiere at the end. She revealed that um, if she was to do an eighth myth, obviously the book's the seven myths of education, it would be based around assessment. And that yeah. was a nice way to plug her making good progress book. Yeah. I like that. Very, very good session. Okay, so uh, then you went off to a different session. So what did you see uh, session two? Yeah, I went off to see Feed Forward from prelims to final exams. And it was from two teachers from here, the yes. Dollar Academy, uh, Dean Campbell and uh, Lorena McGookin. And they were talking about some of the things they've been doing in terms of using summative assessments formatively. Ah, okay. Um, and this so, is a big subject of Daisy's book, right? Yeah, uh-huh. well. yeah. Um, So I went along, I'll be honest, um, I talked a lot about in my session about how we can't always use summative assessments formally. But some of the stuff they've done was really interesting. There was a couple of things I've maybe uh, I'll share just okay. now. Um, so they had question by question analysis grades. That like a prelims a mock exam. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that's what they mean by prelims. Right. So yeah, kids mock. do a mock exam. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this idea, so you've got a question by question analysis, and that's fine. We all. And that's so kind of per. Is it per student? And yeah. So each each student has. Uh, I think. I think. Uh, Dean was a biology teacher, so okay. here it was um, gene expression, whatever that is. <laughs> and uh, here was his score on each of the questions where that appeared. Here's your uh-huh. total mark. And then it was about well, what you're going to do about that. Right, okay. Right? So yeah, that like kind it. of idea. And that'd be fair, that'd be really common across schools, yeah, both in England uh-huh. and Scotland, right? Okay, so, so that, I thought, well, that, that's something which, yeah, a lot of people do that anyway. Yeah, but, okay. So a couple of the things they did, they looked at. Um, the reason you lost the mark, so the highlighted down, so this was a little bit of metacognition. Ah. So was it you misread the question and silly mistake? Do you really need to go and re-revise that stuff then? Ah, I right? like this. Okay. Um, or I didn't understand the wording of the question, then you're perhaps not familiar enough with And these are, so I'm just looking at this, these are kind of pre-written kind of prompts yep. almost. Yes. I like. it, so it's, it's two columns in the page, reason you lost the marks, 
and then you have to go and fill in the question right. numbers and maybe maybe the action you take on each of these would then be slightly different yes um, one of them simply I had not learned the content yeah and you know Important. sometimes yeah, that'll yeah. happen uh, the answer not specific enough in that in the context of that uh, they had more questions I've tried these things myself before actually um, how long before the prelim before the mock did you start revising I uh, like this how many revision, revision sessions did you do out with class time uh, how long was each session that you came to uh, or you spent your own time doing um, tick the methods you used to revise and this was something they were really key on they wanted to see what the kids were doing to revise yeah. and then they were going to talk to them about what effective revision was ah okay and they said it's a bit of a battle because kids were wanting to highlight yep they were wanting to rewrite stuff out yep. in the same words as what it was there copying up notes yes yep in fact instead of what we know high high impact strategies like self testing, yeah. quizzing, yeah, um, do, do, doing actually doing actually doing maths, yeah, spacing out the topics, all this kind yeah. of stuff, yeah. So they only talked about all these kind of the, the learning scientist type stuff. So I like that, but they would do they were t telling the kids that after the yeah. kids had. Uh huh. I like this because it's it's kind of I mean it's going to feed in nicely to what I'm going to talk about with the metacognition in the session I saw, but it's. It's making that metacognition explicit, right? It's yeah. forcing them to reflect uh -huh. back on lost marks and then start to think how why they may not have done yeah, exactly. the test. I like this. So they're talking about the idea of geo coding and all this kind yes. of stuff as well. How can you how can you do that? Uh, something else that another simple little thing was okay. Here is um, your here's four of you sitting together. There's your mock paper. Okay. Uh, None of you have done particularly well on question four. Can you come up with a composite answer ah, between yes. the four of you? That nice. might, and then we'll, then we'll mark that and see how that goes, that kind of idea. I thought that was good. Something else they, they mentioned, um, which was an interesting statistic, and uh, I can't remember the reference for yeah. it, but it was something like this. 38% of feedback in this one particular study actually award people performance yes and it reminds yes. me what Dylan Williams said about feedback when he was on your, on mm. uh, on the podcast and how not all feedback is actually I mean that is frightening isn't it though, uh -huh. right because it's the thing that takes up probably most of a teacher's time outside yeah. the actual teaching mm -hmm. and to think that I mean it's bad enough thinking it's having no effect but the fact it, the fact that it could be having a negative yeah. effect is just ridiculous uh, and we talked a little bit then about like, what, what, what is the feedback so you need to give more examples well if the kid had more examples they would have given more yeah, examples yeah, 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 yeah. so perhaps you should give the kid those examples uh, or um, so it's like advice versus feedback is that's just advice then they were talking about feedback versus evaluation what's well done yes or not so good yeah. that, that's evaluation that's not feedback and um, another like template they had was about identifying the key areas to improve and that was like using a similar grid as we've talked about yeah but then helping the pupil again that metacognition idea of i am going to improve this by and it was talking about the things i had to do to, to get better oh, then okay yes um and it was in actually putting in place strategies for going forward. So I mean, I like the sound of this because it's it's simple stuff, right? Uh -huh. But it's stuff that um, you could apply across different subjects. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm listening definitely. to some of that, and, and I don't know if you're the same as me, Chris, but often I hear these kind of kind of generic strategies, and I think, but maths is different to this. Like, it's not going to work in maths. But I'm I'm listening to that, thinking I could see that I can see that working in maths. So yeah. once kids are doing it across different subjects, it becomes part of the routine and stuff. And as I say, like we, we couldn't have planned this better because you've teed me up perfectly to, to speak about <laughs> the, the metacognition stuff now because 
that that was the session I was in next, which was um, it was let, let me get this pronunciation is going to be horrendous here. So it's by um, Caroline. I'm going to go for Kuepa Tetzel, but anything could be anything could be happening there. <laughs> so hopefully she can recognise her own name there um, out of my terrible pronunciation. And the, the session was um, the role of metacognition in education. Now I don't know about you. But metacognition is one of those words. It's becoming almost a new buzzword that's being yeah. banded around. And I don't have a flipping clue what it means, <laughs> right? I've got a vague notion, um, and it was good. Um, Caroline, opening definition was um, metacognition is a student's knowledge about their knowledge. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I thought, I'll take that. But then, again, I thought, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know where I'm going to go with that. But this session was really, really good. So I'll go through a few key points. And if anything doesn't make sense, or you, you just jump in, Chris, and I'll, I'll do my best to explain so um, the first thing was, she said that the goals, uh, she, she said that we want kids to, to be able to make metacognitive judgments. And we want to do this in two ways. We want them to be able to make accurate metacognitive judgments. So we want them to have a good sense of what they, what they know about what they know. And we also want them to be able to use those judgments to therefore improve their study or their practice or their performance. And the way that the studies do this, very, very simple, I mean, ridiculously simple, they ask kids before they take a test how well they think they're going to do or do on a task. And then they compare that result with how well they actually do and measure a correlation and see how close that correlation is to one. So it's not just the case that they want kids to do well. It's like if a kid thinks they're going to do bad and they do bad, that at least shows that they've got metacognition because they're, they're aware of their deficiencies and so on and so forth. Now, here's a stat for you. Across um, the, the studies that Caroline had looked at, the correlation in terms of students' metacognitive judgment was 0.27. So kids are pretty crap at, at mm. getting a sense, not just of how well they're going to do, but in terms of which areas they're going to, which topics they're going to do well on relative to other topics. So, so kids are pretty crap. That's that idea of kids not being able to traffic like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They, um, they overinflate the the perception of how they are with the different things. Correct, correct. And um, and it's interesting because she put that up, and then she said, "Well, why is this bad?" And she outlined three reasons why this is actually a, a big, big problem. So first, it's students may decide not to study something before they've actually mastered it because they think they're good at it. Mm-hmm. Or, and I've seen this a lot, kids may continue studying something that they don't need to. Mm-hmm. So every, every decision a kid makes has got an opportunity cost. If they decide to spend an hour on something just because they like doing it, it's an hour yeah. that they're not spending on something else. And also, and I've seen this a lot as well, that kids use inefficient strategies. And mm. we've perfect exactly yeah. what you were speaking about there. So then Caroline moved on to how do we actually improve kids making these metacognitive judgments? And it's so simple, this, but I thought it was really, really powerful. Now, the first thing is a bit of a disclaimer, I should say, that many of the studies that Caroline mentioned involved an um, understanding text. So it's kind of English comprehension style things. And you see a lot of this in the research into metacognition, that it seems to be English-based stuff. So we've got to be careful generalising to maths. Yeah, uh-huh. But I thought this kind of made sense. So, so see what you make of this. The first way, the easiest way is to ask them to make judgments of how well they've understood a topic or how well they think they're going to do in a test after a delay from when you've taught them the thing. So if you ask them, so you've just taught them how to add fractions, if you then say to them, how well do you think you're going to do on an adding fractions test? 
they'll be far less accurate in their judgments of their own performance than if you delay it by a day or a week. So just instigating a delay makes the correlation even rise potentially to kind of 0.8, 0.9, um, as opposed to this 0.27. Did, so, she, did you have a reason why she put that one? Yeah, I think, I assume it's the difference between learning and performance. I assume yeah. that it's, um, things are in, you know, kids are performing well at the moment, that they've still got all the cues that they can see, it's fresh in working memory, they've got all the kids around, them they've got the notes in front of them yeah I think I've got this uh-huh. but then in the cold light of day when they haven't studied it for a day or whatever then maybe their judgments um, a bit more accurate so that was an easy one so I thought that was nice um, <laughs> this one's obvious but I thought this was nice as well got to make sure kids have actually understood the material in the first place so um, we've got to actually have some way of checking whether kids have understood it and I, I talk about this both in the book and when I give talks that I used to do thumbs up if you think you've got it thumbs down if you haven't and all this but we've got to give them some information some some help to make that judgment a bit more accurate so um Caroline was saying a really good way to do this is what she called delayed summarizing so the following day and um, so let's go back to adding fractions. The following day, you ask students to summarize how they add fractions together. Um, and this de- combining the delay plus this kind of putting it into their own words is an effective way, not just for getting them better at it, but for making them realize whether they've understood something or yeah, not understood it. Have. So I thought that was nice. And I'll tell you what, it tied into something I was just reading completely randomly, and I've only just made this connection now. Have you heard of the, um, the Feynman technique for no, learning? I have not. See if you like this, Chris, right? right. So Richard Feynman, a famous physicist, uh-huh. and he has this, this way to, to, to make anybody learn something something better right and what it is you try to learn it yourself which okay fairly obvious and then the second thing is you try to explain it in a way an eight-year-old could understand it and his argument is if you can't do that you don't understand it yourself because if you can't put it in simplified english in a way that you can put it to an eight-year-old you don't understand it and when you find that you can't then you need to go back and reread it and try and build up your knowledge and understand so you can explain it. And I thought that was lovely. That yes. I was lovely because I've done that myself. Like I've read something and I could regurgitate it back using the language that they use, but I couldn't put it into more simplified yeah, language in a way. Uh-huh. I thought it was nice. Yeah, that, right. So yeah. I, I was I was loving that one. So I, I, again, I think that's a nice technique. If I, so, I could I could relate that, that to maths quite a lot. That's really uh, funny you say this because. I'm saying that um, I'd never heard of that, and then I'm just glancing back at my own Twitter feed here, and I read <laughs> Richard Feynman. Oh, there he is! Yeah, there he is. <laughs> the ultimate test of your knowledge is your capacity to convey it to another. There we go. So, there we've we got go. it. We've yeah. got it. We've so, got it. It's so, true. It might be a cognition. There you go. So that was. I, I thought that was a good one, and then it linked into one that I think is absolutely essential. Kids have to actively retrieve material before making judgments. So it's not just enough to say, uh, do you remember what we did yesterday? Give them two fractions to add together. Like actually force them to, to retrieve it. Um, and, and that then gives them a better sense of what they know and what they don't know. And to really improve the, the metacognitive judgments, that's got to be combined with feedback. They've got to know whether their answer was right or wrong. So I, again, simple stuff, but I, th- I thought that was powerful. And um, she then listed some strategies that don't work. Um, that don't improve kids' metacognitive judgment, and you've touched upon some already, Chris. Cramming, rereading, highlighting, just make kids 
uh, give them false security that they know what's going on, mm-hmm. so they, they, they get overconfident. One that she included, though, re-watching class videos. Now, I thought this was interesting, because in maths, loads of videos out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, we, we go on YouTube, Google anything, you, you uh, search for anything on YouTube, but just kind of passively watching a video doesn't make anything sink, sink in. Mm-hmm. So, again, I, I thought that was good. So I know a lot of my kids think that that's good revision. They're like, yeah, I yeah. watched an hour of videos last night, so, well, no, no unless you're self-quizzing and stuff. Yeah. So she said, things to do, distributed practice and retrieval practice um, not only help contribute to learning, but they um, they help this meta, help develop this, this metacognition. Um, and the final thing I'll say there is that the, my kind of biggest takeaway is that we need to give students as much information as possible to help them make their metacognitive judgments as accurate as possible. So for me, that's low-stakes quizzes where you distribute mixed topic, uh, low-stakes quizzes distributed over time, diagnostic questions, um, and so on and so forth. So it was just, it was, what I liked is it tied metacognition into kind of effective learning strategies for me. And now I kind of, I've seen the research on why it's important, and now I feel I'm kind of better equipped to help yeah. make my kids make those things. And the final thing I'll say, and I don't have an answer to this myself, and this is something I'm going to go away and think about, is how does metacognition link to my obsession with confidence and the hypercorrection effect? Mm-hmm. So I'm obsessed with getting kids to make provide a, a measure of confidence of how confident they are that an answer's right. And I think that starts to get them thinking about metacognition because if they get, if they say, I'm nine out of 10 confident this is right and, and then they find it's wrong, then it kind of has, has an impact on them and it's, it's something that they can then reevaluate where that erroneous belief came from. So I was impressed with that session. Uh, session yeah, yeah, I feel a bit more informed on, on yeah, metacognition. That certainly seems a really interesting session. It was session, good. It was good. It does. All right, what did you do next session? Um, Three we must be up to now. Yeah, I went along and saw uh, Professor Mark Priestley. Who oh, yeah, from, you've mentioned a bit of this. Yeah, yeah, so he's from nearby here. He's at Stirling University. And his talk was titled Milkmen or Educators, that's Teachers as Curriculum Makers. Uh, And this was very, uh, it blew my mind. There was so much stuff in there, I'm never going to be able to convey it. Okay, give me some some highlights. I'm going to need to go away and spend a week trying to digest it all. (laughs) However, um, he was talking about this. uh, First of all, he was contrasting different systems, Scotland and England, for instance. So, Scotland, Wales, New Zealand, Canada, similar. Um, in England and Sweden as being different in that they're the fact-based, the knowledge-based kind of curricula, uh-huh, that okay. idea, whereas, as I already alluded to, this kind of idea of less prescriptive teaching content up here. And effectively, I suppose we're talking about takeaways here, so without going into it all, yeah. I think the thing that really struck me in his talk was the idea that in curriculum development, there's different levels of that. You've got national, you've yeah. got local, you've yeah. got school, and then you've got your department, and then your classroom, yes. which is where you yes. embody the curriculum. One of the things he was talking about, and I really like this, and I stole it from one presentation after, <laughs> was the curriculum is more than, the curriculum is more than just the content. It's a set of ideas, principles, and resources that allows to develop the practice of other mm, teachers okay yes um, and I thought actually that's quite interesting um, in terms of so it's the principles of what what do we want and it, it's then that idea of so he said about formative assessment has been something which hadn't been people had seen this uh, this is an amazing thing a lot of evidence supporting it yeah but if you understand it at a level of principles then you can embody that you teach and you make it part of your practice yes yes if it's a bolt on which a lot of things become mm. 
uh, which is a checklist you have to do this yeah. you end up with what the, the quote I gave you earlier on about the learning objectives on the board yes. people having lollipop sticks in the class because yes. they're meant to but is it, a, is it appropriate at that point in time yes. these kind of ideas um, I'll he, tell you what, sorry to interrupt you I'll tell you what I like about that and this will um, this ties in with um, something that the session I went to, to see Martin Robinson about curriculum as well and I was going to ask you this Chris but you've kind of answered it there when I, there's a lot of buzz curriculum's another big buzzword oh, Everyone, yeah. everyone's chatting it right mm. whenever I read about curriculum um, and I was talking to Daisy about this um, uh, in the meal last night she said that um, certainly in English like curriculum's a really big issue because um, you have decisions to make like which Shakespeare play oh. do you teach which novel do you study in history you have decisions to make which period of history do you study yeah. blah 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 but in and I see that for curriculum, but in maths, like we don't have that many decisions to make in terms of the content we teach, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. every year we're teaching fractions, every year we're teaching quadratic equations. It can't be all of a sudden that I think I don't fancy fractions this year. I'm going to leave yeah. them, leave yeah. them off, right? But curriculum's more than just as you're saying there. It's not just the content we teach. Uh -huh. It's 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 how we teach it. It's our style of teaching. Yes, it's, it's the extra method. So. I, I think that's the answer to the question. Curriculum's still relevant to uh -huh. maths, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think I think it's that idea. It's it's more than just the what you teach. And what what he was getting about was the. What, interestingly, I suppose from a maths perspective, he was talking about different starting points you can have when you're designing curricula. And he was talking about you can have an outcomes-based perspective, yeah. or you can have a behaviours kind of based perspective. Okay. Okay. And to me, well, it's. Perhaps we should have both. Okay. So you've got the outcome and the behaviours. So we want you to be able to perform these different procedures. Okay, so that's the outcomes best. We want you to be able but to do things, yeah. We want you to be able to think mathematically. Yes. We want you to be able to conjecture, to reason. We want you to be able to weigh up. Um, we, we, these kind of softer scales which permeate. Yes. And maybe you want to define those explicitly as well. And they're right? hard. And they're, I mean, yeah, again, hard, well, yeah. we, we, we could go off on one here. Mm -hmm. and, and this is why you, you're definitely coming back on the podcast for a full discussion. Because I know that you're very into these kind of mathematical behaviours. And I am, um, I mean, I, I like them, but I just find them so hard to define. I find oh, them yeah. hard to define. Mm -hmm. And um, measure is probably the wrong word, but I, I find it hard to know, to well, get a sense of whether my kids yeah. are doing them or not. That's you know? exactly one of the points uh, Mark said was, Encouraging schools to do a uh, qualitative study, yeah, uh, uh, as well as quantitative to measure the success of what you're doing, and well, in an exam-driven culture, that's difficult, it's isn't hard, it? Isn't it? it is. Uh, however, that was that was one of the things that he was kind of alluding to. Um, one of the other things was in terms of the curriculum, was we need time to sense make we. Just like I can't believe our learners, but we, we need practice, but we need opportunities to sense make. Teachers need time to sense make as well. I like this phrase, uh, sense make. What, 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 what do you mean by that? It's, it's, well, not, it's not one that I'm overly familiar right, with. Right, okay, well, I think, okay, on the maths example, we can we can give um, kids the opportunity to do all sorts of different tasks with percentages, fractions, and yeah. decimals. We can create uh, other tasks which show them the, the different relative kind of how the, the equivalence of them. But a fraction's got so many different meanings. Yeah. Like it's position of the number line, it's fraction of the amount. Yeah. It is a decimal, it is a percentage. Yes. Uh, uh, you've got you've, you've got a whole host of stuff going on there. It's got pictorial representation. Yes, it's a nightmare. Know, it, so it's all that. And it's a ratio. You've got all that. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like, perhaps sometimes you're going to have tasks in the maths context where 
the kids are just having an opportunity to play with it a bit. Okay. This is difficult because like then you might not be able to measure it yes, quantitatively. Yeah. Your formative assessment, your hinge question might not even pick yeah, it up. Yeah. But has no learning happened? Yeah, this is the right? this, this is the so thing. Okay. That, that's something I'm playing with in my own head at the moment. Um, and it, it kind of comes back to a, a good article I read by uh, Anne Watson where yes. she's talking just about fractions and it's, uh, what is it, Taming the Dragon. I'd recommend uh, people have a, have a look okay. at that one. Uh, it's really good. Uh, and it's something she's she's talking about in the context of that. You need a variety of approaches, a variety of ideas, and a variety of tasks to kind of to get them to there. It's just, but again, it's again like this. This will probably form the basis of our long form form discussion when when we have it at some point in the future. But that is the tricky thing, isn't it? Because it there is this obsession with with getting a sense of whether learning has taken place, and and we we, we can't observe learning. Yeah, of All we can not. do is proxies of it. All we can do is observe performance. So it's. It's much easier to to see a kid get a hinge question right or uh-huh. or get yeah, yeah. improve like answer a question that they couldn't answer a week ago or whatever. Yeah. But what do we observe when we're observing this kind of sense making uh-huh. stuff? But intuitively, it feels like it is important. It yes. feels like it's important, but it's it's just difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to know whether it's it's working or not. Mm-hmm. And I just look back at my teaching, and I think that was a big mistake I used to make that I had no way of knowing whether a lot of the teaching I did was effective until yeah. perhaps kids did an exam at the end of the day yeah, yeah. and if they did crap I should have picked up on it earlier yeah. and it's it's just diff- it's difficult I think, I, think it, I think it does come to that blend of approaches doesn't it like yes, having, yes having a good chunk of direct instruction yeah. in there but these opportunities I think you're right because you can swing you can swing too far the other way right yeah you can go extreme direct explicit instruction all the time because the pendulum I think I know know several people who had the same kind of journey as I'm about to talk about whereby you kind of come into teaching you think it's all inquiry it's all that stuff then you're totally militant (laughs) direct instruction is the one true word and then you kind of come back in the middle a little bit and that's um because you realise that uh, you look at people like John and Anne, who yeah. are probably the two most knowledgeable people I've ever spoken to. Well, why do they think they're still a place for it? Oh, it's, it's interesting. So, and again, I think, yeah. I think again, we're, we're teasing left, right, and centre, but I think we're going to have a fascinating discussion about this yeah. because if there was a spectrum, and if inquiry is on the left and direct instructions on the right, I think I'm more right than you are. But it'll be interesting to, uh-huh. to, to see yeah. our see our reasons. Now I'll, I'll I'll very much look forward to that. And um, yeah, anything else from that? Anything else from that? Uh, yeah. Oh, there was absolutely plenty. Oh, yeah. But um, give me a couple of couple more. Well, give well, give me some, some kind of big takeaways for you. I suppose the, the last one then was about people talk about Finland and mm. what what they do over there, and like, it's not about the correct one is better. Yeah. Or whatever. It's just that Finland is a good systems in, in place. And good processes for allowing teachers the opportunity to sense make okay. about the curriculum design, which here we've not done that. It's in the middle levels. We've got good aims and ambitions at the top of Scottish yep. education. Teachers who are keen in the, at the yes. bottom of the, the panel or in that kind of yep. hierarchy. It's in the middle, what Mark called the meso layer, oh. uh, the implementation gap. Um, that's been an issue. And they've they've got this sorted in Finland, have they? Yeah, that's what he reckoned. That's why they've been effective in implementing curricula because they give teachers time and space to do that, and also guidance and support in that and developing context 
specific and appropriate correctly. Well, that's perhaps. interesting. That's one of the things he was saying. Um, yeah. Anything else from that session? I know you could talk no, about I think, about I think, this, I think that's I think the that's, biggest. Yeah, that's the biggest just now. I like that one. Well, I, I've, I've not got too much to say about um, Martin Robinson, not because it wasn't a, a fascinating session, but it was a curriculum as well. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, that was what I was thinking about throughout it, that, um, yeah, is curriculum that relevant in maths? But you... Like you've you've certainly added to my persuasion there that um that, that it certainly is because it's more than just the content it's it's the it's the other big decisions that we make but it was it's fascinating learning about the Scottish curriculum versus the English curriculum and so for 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 listeners who don't know um, what the aims of the English curriculum are I'll just I'll just read you this out the and this isn't um this isn't just maths this is just just overall the English national curriculum states that we should um introduce pupils to the best that has been thought and said through a study of the essential knowledge they need to be educated citizens so quite lofty ambitions there. And then Martin contrasted that to the Scottish curriculum, the age of the Scottish curriculum. So the curriculum for excellence suggests that we should create successful learners who should be confident individuals, responsible citizens, and be able to contribute effectively. And it just got me thinking that, and again, you may disagree with me on this, Chris, but if we want kids to be successful learners, confident individuals, responsible citizens, and contribute effectively, for that, for me, you have to get the success right. Now, I'm obsessed with success yeah, and kids feeling successful. But if you want kids to be confident, they're not mm. going to be confident in the long term unless they're successful. Yes. Or whatever, however we define success. Unless they think, actually, I feel good about how I'm learning. Mm. I, 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 I'm willing to take on this challenge because I think I'm going to be successful or I can get there and so on. They're not going to be able to contribute effectively unless they can be successful and so on. And I think... It all boils down to, to success for me. Is it, are, are you as obsessed with success as I am, or do you? No, see? yeah, very attainment driven. Yeah, um, ultimately, that it's what it's. Yeah, there's, there's, there's broad aims in education. Yes. You want the, the cultural capital. You want people to be learners. You want them to be learners for life. Uh, the kind of that that kind of formation, but the currency, the hard currency, is exam results. Yes. Um, and that's the, the life prospects, the opportunity to later education, uh, to better jobs, to better long-term prospects. Yes. There's all sorts of like, socioeconomic implications Absolutely. of that in terms of health and all sorts of things. So for me, yeah, it's so important we get it right. I suppose one of the issues in Scotland is many people will say that the kids are very confident. <laughs> right. That's why some people flippantly call it the curriculum for ignorance. Ah, I like uh, it, yes. So that has been something that's been muttered occasionally. That's interesting. Um, yeah, that yeah. is interesting. That's good. I um, might get sacked now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it was uh, the final thing I say about Martin's session for I have back to you is that uh, China and North Korea got involved as well. He, he, he was very clever. Martin put up uh, the kind of ambitions um, of the, the China to Chinese People's Republic Party, and they were very similar to both the English and Scottish national curriculum. Yes, so that that, was, that actually does a, that does ring a bell. That's an interesting. Almost sounds totalitarian, exactly. doesn't it? Exactly. So an interesting little twist there. Okay, uh, what did you see next, mate? Uh, I went to see Dr. Valerie Drew. Uh, oh from right, Stirling, okay. From Stirling Uni, who coincidentally is a former colleague of mine from nice. many years ago, um, and she was talking about practitioner inquiry. Uh, so not so much teachers do research because the sample size is going to be too small. Yes. But in your own context, in your own practice, researching your own practice and what you can do to improve it. Okay. And she was talking about um, looking at this idea of what the, the issue is um, and spending a long time theorising about that and um, looking at it. Then moving forward, 
and planning an interruption, like changing the status quo, okay. and then the evaluation of that. And then she was talking about, and I'll quote this, pedagogic principles, pedagogic mediators, learning processes, and learning outcomes. Now, I was like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. um, the, the, the learning outcomes, of course, would be like the procedure, like know how to do it, or, right, okay. or the declarative, like know that. Yeah, right? sure, sure. Um, the learning process might be by linking, by synthesizing, by metacognition, uh, by processing, accessing and building on prior knowledge. That's the sort of okay. stuff there. Okay. Um, other, that, was, that was learning processes. Outcomes, I forgot to mention, the stuff that the Scottish kind of system aims for, like confidence, resilience, engagement, motivation, okay. all that sort of stuff yeah. is there. Yeah. The, the mediators would be stuff like dialogue and debate. Uh, the worksheets, the textbooks, the digital technology, the collaborative and cooperative learning, okay. interdisciplinary learning. Okay. I kind of think that's the medium yeah. and the tasks. And then the, the pedagogic principles are like promoting social justice and equity and all these sorts of ideas or developing intellectual capacity. So those are yes. kind of loftier kind of things there. And it was this kind of disconnected, disjointed uh, thing. And we were talking about... Um, this idea, like, okay, well, for fractions, like, we'll go back to that yeah. one, okay, the, the effect is you want them to know how to do it, you want them to have a bit of conceptual understanding, yeah. and you want them to be confident with it. Yes. But so then with what learning processes, those high-level, what synthesise and link, what, what's going on there, but then also looking at with what pedagogic medi- mediators are going to be happening there, what, what, re- what resources are you going to use, what tasks are you going to be using, and then it's like, but, vitally important she was going on about was the idea of the principles as to where you're going with this what's underpinning it all and this is a document she's just finished working on that this week it's not even published yet right. so this was a kind of her sharing the work and giving us an opportunity to look at it but certainly um, she was going on about if you're really thinking about professional inquiry and fixing something that you've identified as wrong it's an iterative process it's right. going to continue going on and on and on um, and you should be feedback, feedback. It's a feedback loop all the time, kind of coming back into it and looking at it on, on an ongoing basis. Um, it was a little bit over my head, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're saying that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will have to go away and think about it. But where it did tie in for me, and yeah. I went and spoke to Val at the end of the session, it was John Mason again. Oh, yes. Him again, and it was his book, The Discipline of Noticing. Yeah, that's some book. Uh, for inquiring and to develop, to develop your own practice, which I'm working through just now. Uh, with a couple of other folk and um, it, it really it kind of tied in and it's giving yourself these opportunities to be aware of yes. what's going on and um, so I think it's something I'll have a look, I'll look into a little bit more of it and I think Val's going to maybe put something out on it so it'll be interesting to see it's hard to improve as a teacher isn't it uh-huh. it's so there's so many different variables yes and there's so it's very complex there's so kind of little time to kind of reflect as well and stuff and you, it, it's good to I mean again that that sounds uh, as I say that, that sounds a, li- a little over my head as well but it, if there's some kind of um, model or framework where teachers can evaluate how they're doing and, and, and make these kind of iterative changes and stuff that, that sounds mm. like a very positive yeah, thing yeah very so much that sounds good um, so just one more from me, and then um, and then it's it's well I'll I'll talk about this session. I'll mention briefly what I've been banging on about, and then we'll end with uh, with with you uh, talking about your session, Chris, if that's okay. Sure. So I I went to a fascinating one. So I was going to go to a talk on dyslexia because 
what I try and do at these conferences is I try and see people I've never seen before. So Tom Sherrington was here today, um, who would have done an outstanding session, but I've, I've seen him. Apparently, did yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. And, and Robin, I've, Robin McPherson, I've, I've seen as well. So um, I thought I'd go to different. So I wanted to do dyslexia because I know nothing about dyslexia. But the the lady, the lady, um, for, uh, for for one reason or another, the session wasn't on, and um, the lady who was running it wasn't here. So I just went to a random one. And I found myself in uh, a guy called Robert Davis or Bob Davis. And the title of the this, this session was Why Schools Are Not Factories. Okay. And I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. And he opened up with uh, Ken Robinson, who uh, will, will maybe well, may yeah. be familiar to, yeah. to many, divisive, many listeners. Yeah. <laughs> divisive is exactly the word, right? <laughs> and he's, he's made the, the quote that um, schools should not be factories, but should be farms, which okay. again sounds like the kind of meaningless phrase that people who aren't uh, mm. kind of teachers like, like, to, like to throw into the mix. But the interesting twist, I mean, I'll be honest, a lot of the talk was a bit over my head. I think it was a bit knackered as well um, at the time, because I'd, I'd had a big lunch as well. I was recovering from me run up to this castle um, this morning. But the twist that, that, that Robert was putting on it was, is it not ne- necessarily a bad thing for schools to be equated to factories? Because factories aren't necessarily a bad thing. So... One of the one of the one of the kind of features of a factory that Robert picked up on was standardization, mm-hmm. and with standardization, it sounds like it's a bad thing, like everybody's the same and all this. But with standardization comes efficiency, productivity, and if the standard is excellence, mm-hmm. and it kind of links into the kind of thing that you talk about. If we if we're trying to shift the bell curve, so actually we don't want this kind of spread. We want everybody to achieve excellence then the analogy of a factory isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. So I thought that was quite nice. Yeah, it's nice. It ties in with this idea of um, complexity reduction. Okay. Um, and it's like, there was, it's a, there's another professor, another doctor, professor at Stirling Uni, and he was talking about the idea of age, why do we do this in schools? Why do we have schools as a place for learning? And very much it's this idea that by having a common place, we can standardise that. Then, why do some people group by ability? Because you can reduce the complexity yes, of instruction. Yes. And it, the more the less variables there are, the easier it is to, to train people up to be able to do it. Yes. And to be effective at it. And then to also isolate what works yes. and what doesn't work. Yes. Um and to be able to understand the process a bit better. That's interesting. He yeah. used the analogy of K some I was a, a colleague of mine used the analogy of KFC. All right. They don't have chefs in the back. They've got just people who fry chicken. Yeah, yeah. But you never get you're really disappointed. You know, <laughs> oh, never disappointed. Never. Right. Dis- so, <laughs> what they do is they reduce the complexity. Yeah. Very limited menu, really. Most yes. Of it, most of it's like four bits of chicken they've got, and they put them in different buds. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever, yeah. different buckets. Yeah. Um, but by doing that, they get a certain level of experience coming out. Yeah. It's not rich. It's not like yeah. hot cuisine or whatever. But yeah. It works, um, and it, it's not. Uh, it's, you don't want to equate school to KFC. No. But it's, <laughs> uh, it was. A, it was how how he was using it in a simpler kind of context. Schools are much much more complicated than that. I, I like it, and I think there is a certain need for it because you've got again, in my opinion, anyway, to get kids to the point where they can inquire successfully and and be the independent learners and um, the creative problem solvers. You need to get them to this certain standard. Mm-hmm. 
And for that, often the best way isn't to do kind of extreme differentiation where everybody's doing completely different things. It is the effective standard kind of easy win practices that we know work. So it's it's the for me the 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 regular low stakes quiz. It's the the direct instruction when we first start introducing a concept and so mm-hmm. on. And it's a very uniform way of doing things. Mm-hmm. But that is a kind of a means to an end that gets kids to a point where then we can start to break the factory model and start to diversify. Yeah. And it reminds me of, of Tom Sherrington's metaphor of the, the learning rainforest, where if you want kids to kind of flourish to get to the point where they can kind of come into bloom for want of a better phrase you've got to give them that foundational mm. not that foundational support so I just thought it was an interesting spin on it that factories aren't necessarily the worst kind of thing for a school to be thought yeah, of yeah that is interesting that. That, yeah. and I'll tell you what if KFC are listening and they want to sponsor this podcast <laughs> they are more than welcome to we're, we're big fans here and the final thing I'll say before I hand over to you to, to, to just talk a little bit about your session is um, I did a session on um uh, on four things from my book and I've been also up here and I did a session with the maths department at Dollar uh, speaking about uh, well just doing doing kind of training um, uh, my various stuff yesterday but one thing I spoke about today well first thing I did my ban all classroom displays just to stir up a bit of trouble in the, in the Scottish audience uh, luckily no haggises were, were thrown at me but the other thing I talked about was, was variation theory or my take on intelligent practice and I know this has stirred up a load of trouble <laughs> and um, I spoke about this on the podcast before just when the kind of trouble was all kicking off and I just wanted and it's good to have you here uh, Chris because um, I've since gone away and kind of thought about things and I've added a load of kind of pedagogical notes to the to, to the variation thing just so people basically if people disagree with me I want them to know what they're disagreeing with if that makes yes. sense oh. if that makes sense because people will still disagree but mm-hmm. a lot of people were saying that I was saying something that I wasn't yes. so I would I would advise listeners and um, if you're interested in my take on the little bit of variation theory that I've kind of interpreted or what, or what I call intelligent practice, just go to variationtheory.com and read the um, read this first bit and you'll get detailed pedagogical notes and a whole load of new activities. And then when you're back on the show, Chris, because I know you, you've some strong thoughts about this and I know you often mm-hmm. share on Twitter sequences of examples that you've written and, and then learner-generated examples that you prompt from there. So I'd love to dig in further with that if you're yeah. happy to do that when we, uh, when yeah, we meet again. That. That'll be good. So that's a little teaser. To, to check out Chris's return to the podcast. Anyway, you ran two sessions kind of back to back, and um, this will also form, form part of our, our discussion. But just give us a little, give us a few little highlights and perhaps a, a takeaway or two from. Yeah, from that. sure. Um, a couple of things. Well, we've been implementing a mastery curriculum um, over the past three or four years, and I've given a kind of rundown on what mastery is, the mastery learning cycle, and how we've been implementing that. Yeah. Um, and some of the successes we've had with that so far in terms of moving forward and I think one of the things we're at pains to point out um, in terms of if you just want to take away because I'm not giving it all away just now, <laughs> yeah hold it back <laughs> uh, I'll hold some of it back <laughs> yeah um, takeaways we were kind of talking about the expectations you have from the beginning of secondary school Right. there's no point kind of putting all the pressure on them when the exams are coming it's about building that culture to begin with. Ah, okay, yes. So we're talking about how, for instance, at our place, um, I've read people on Twitter kind of calling me out on it, um, we don't do revision lessons Okay. Uh, in the first, second, third year at all. Right. If, if we can get away with it. And basically what that is, yeah, we are planning for retention, so you're teaching the stuff yeah. uh, through your starters, through yeah. your quizzes, through the homework, the retention's there. Yeah. But you don't tell the kids you're doing that. Okay. You don't make them aware formally of 
the retention stuff you're doing for them. So you give them the revision pack a couple of weeks before the assessment. Right. And you don't give them any time in class to do it. Okay. okay. It's, so it's putting the ownership onto them, but yeah. you still have a lot of the ownership because you're planning for this anyway. So right, you are doing a lot of the stuff. But okay. culturally, you're putting it onto them and letting them see that they have a part to play here. They are responsible. And by doing that from the beginning, you build that on and the, the kids will be more engaged. Now, we're in the third year of this now. Uh, and you will see, I'm talking kids who are still a couple of way, a couple of years away from like, that exit exam, uh, sitting at six o'clock on a Friday night, if they've got one of these coming up, after school, they'll sit and they'll work hard after school, because they're, uh, they're really, the, the engagement has been a lot better, it's been something really positive. That's and that's so because, so let me get this right, there, there's no, you're not running any revision lessons, no kind of not in class. So we'll, no. we will do it like after school drop-ins. There, you after school drop-in. Okay, uh-huh. fine. But we, you're not giving up class time. Yeah, we're not. We're not saying you have to come. It's all on you how you do right. it. I love this. So it's because we moan that they don't take ownership. Well, we need to teach them how to take I ownership. This uh, and give them that opportunity. So the other thing is we do a we uh, every child have any homework policy. Now okay. I know homework something that's debatable and the effect sizes and all yeah, that yeah, sort sure, of stuff. Sure. I don't even know if it has an impact on the learning, but the key thing it's doing is we give them 10 minutes a night, every night. Of maths? Uh All right, okay. They're used to doing it. Yes. I'm in in a comprehensive school in Glasgow, and we've got a 98% rate of homework doing. You're joking. Right, so they just... 10 minutes every night? 10 minutes every night. Like written, like Uh computer or written, written. written. Yeah, and they just do it, because they've been used to doing it since day one. It's what yes. happened at the beginning. Yes, yes. So the first, second, third years, they just do it. Now, you get the odd kid who just doesn't buy in. Yeah, and of course, you can't, of course. Of but course. it's such a high percentage of kids just do it. That's ridiculous. Um, like, basically, the policy is on the fourth occasion, we'll, they'll be at the head of the department and I'll be sending a letter home. Yeah. I've sent home in three years less than 20 letters. Bloody hell. And it's just because they've been used to it. See, if I look at our senior kids who haven't been through yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They won't even study for their exam. No, no. Never mind do the homework. Like, like they, like with all sorts of strategies, getting them to do stuff. So it's like we can't have, raise the expectations when the stakes are high. It's from day one, and it's also the same then building that into your teaching. Yes. There's no lesson that doesn't matter. Yes. Day yes. one, uh, you can't. Oh, it's only what is it? Year eight in, in England. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. S one, S two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've got my, my higher class and my nat 5 class coming in next day they're, 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 yeah, I'm yeah. accountable for them I'll get found out if it all matters because it's all part of this one journey it's all this sequence and every minute counts uh, Mark McCork talks about uptime yeah. maximising every minute of the, every lesson um, and that's something we're really big on and it's then I've talked quite a lot about the sort of tasks we use and the sort of teaching and it's that kind of blended direct a lot about inquiry, looking at effective tasks, which might be variation theory, maybe some of the Malcolm Swan type stuff, and putting all this together. And then I talked a lot about more about assessment, summative and formative, and how we can't always use summative assessments formatively. Yes. And then I talked a lot about about uh, assessment design. But if I start, we're we'll we'll all right. right. That so, is a great teaser, Lacra. And um, just pick up on a couple of things there. Um, I love it. I absolutely love the sound of this. We have a we have a problem um, in our school that um, kids, particularly year eleven, that's when uh, the revision kicks in. Mm-hmm. So that's when kids kids don't particularly take it seriously in in year seven um, and eight. Year eleven, 
all of a sudden all the pressure comes on the kids get meetings with like our deputy head and head mm. teacher and all this and it's like this is the big year all this kind of stuff but kids know we're going to be putting on revision classes kids know we're going to be putting on after school lessons and all this mm. kind of stuff so I don't, I don't know if this rings true for, for other teachers, that kids almost feel like if they turn up to an after-school class, magically that's going to oh, be yeah, done the yeah, revision for them, right? Just by attending, oh. like via some kind of osmosis, they've, mm-hmm. they've done the revision, so they don't have yeah. to do anything at home. And it's getting kids... Like, we know that kids have to practice maths to get to get good at maths. It's the, it's, mm-hmm. it's the only way to do it. And there is not enough time just to do it in lessons. No. They have to space it out they have to do it independently they have to do it regularly and mm-hmm. so on and so forth and it's the biggest struggle to get kids to do that and yeah. one thing that i mean i always refer back to dylan william he's, he said some things that have kind of transformed me one thing i don't think i've talked about on this podcast is that dylan says we should learn a lot from and i can't say this word per- peripatetic teachers teachers of right. like musical instrument uh-huh. teachers because what they realise is that, so you'll get somebody who comes into a school for one hour a week to mm-hmm. teach the kid how to play the guitar. So they'll have a one hour yeah. play the guitar lesson, right? But if the child does no practice in the rest of that week, then they're never going to learn the guitar. You're not going to learn the guitar by playing one hour a week. Mm-hmm. Like, it's going to take you 20 years to learn it. Yeah. So what they spend a lot of, the best music teachers spend their time not just instructing the kids but training them to how to practice effectively, independently. Yes, that's because really that's important. where the learning's going to kick in. Yeah. But I don't think we do that as teachers, or certainly yeah. I don't. I think to myself, all the learning's going to happen in the lesson. Mm-hmm. But if I could teach the world's best lessons, and if kids do nothing outside of the lesson, they're not going to be good mathematicians, or they're no. certainly not going to be as good as they yeah, need to. Not going to be potential. So it sounds like what you're doing there is you're... You're tapping into, you're making your lessons effective, but you've also managed to make what happens outside of the lesson effective from a really young age, which is like, yeah. it sounds like the holy grail, this. That, that's, that's the aim with it. And it's then looking at how, how, you, how you use these assessments as well. When you're doing summative assessments in the younger years, you get 70%. What do you do then? Oh, that's fine. Let's move on. Yes. Or 70% is not quite good enough on yeah. fractions. That means 30% of the fraction stuff we've taught you, you don't know. Yeah. I need you to know all of that next yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And believe it or not, we have letter told kids for 70% on a fractions test. Nice. Uh, saying you're going to reset. Yeah. And it's just, there's a revision pack sent home to my mum. And these sort of interventions, are, they take time, they're labour intensive, but it's about that distribution of the bell curve and yes. shifting it to the right to the positive direction and I think it's that sort of superhuman effort that's actually doing all over and above and all these extra things um, but try because all teachers do that they all put in all this energy we'll put the energy into stuff that matters yeah and put and, the energy in that's going to have big returns that's going to yeah. make the kids put the effort in so as well sitting marking pails of jotters I don't know if it's going no. to make the difference have no. a look at them yeah maybe mark the first couple of the year to let them know they're accountable but yeah. then spot check occasionally yeah, after yeah, that yeah, yeah. Um, so that's is, that's a, one of a few things but I, was, I like I'd, it I'd far too many slides as usual <laughs> that sounds super well that brings us to the end of this conference takeaway I hope you've enjoyed that um this has been has this been your first research ed or have you this is actually the first research ed well, yeah. what do you make what do you make of it yeah it's really good uh, it's been different to the the kind of math circuit uh, obviously with different subjects but similar to yourself I decided I wasn't going to go and see the people who I'm, I'm quite familiar with yeah. uh, on Twitter or whatever or I've read a lot of their stuff yeah. and I thought I'm going to go and see different people today and I'm going to just go and 
um, open my eyes up a little bit to some different ideas and uh, I thoroughly enjoy doing that. It's been good, hasn't it? And there seems to be, again, it's a bit of a cliche, but there seems to be an appetite for it, like the, this yeah. kind of thing here mm. in, in Scotland. I mean, obviously yeah, it's definitely. a biased sample because I'm only basing it on the people who've actually given up their time on a Saturday, but... Mm. It's been a decent number, right? Yeah, like over yeah. two hundred people. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's and it, there's the, the conference circuit in Scotland is expanding because with um, the maths conference, we've got yep. our own Scottish uh, national maths conference. There's the maths maths association yes, conference next yes. week. Uh, we've been running an ATM branch in Glasgow as well. So there's been a whole host of stuff, uh, all really well attended. And it's just there's a as I say, there's definitely a movement, a collective kind of collaborative kind of. Uh, coming together of maths teachers which can only be a good thing it can it seems to be the place, place to be and it's beautiful weather always in yeah. Scotland so it's <laughs> absolutely ideal well Chris thank you so much for giving up your time at the end of a, of a busy day it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and I, I can't always. wait to have you back on back on the podcast and thank you for, for tuning in and listening I hope you like these conference takeaways hope you help it helps make you feel kind of a part of it and if you if you couldn't make it um, I'll be back if you listen to this in order there'll be a conference takeaway from uh, back from sunny Scotland when uh, I do maths comp 16 I think it is from from Glasgow and then we return with some kind of normal long form interviews and, and all the other stuff so thank you for listening to uh, the podcast give us a review on iTunes um, if you get a chance help spread the word about these podcasts to both your maths and your non-maths colleagues you take care of yourselves and bye for now